Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that I'm looking at in my Bible. And I would be encouraging you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in your Bible. Be ready to read a couple of verses there right at the top of the chapter in just a moment. We'll be in a number of different places in the Bible this morning. And so it's going to be very helpful for you to be looking in the Scriptures and be reading those passages with me. Let's let God do the talking to us. Weigh everything that I'm going to say today in light of the Word of God. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let me echo the welcome that has been extended to you already. It's great to see everybody on this fine Lord's Day morning. It was announced we do have several of our number that are that are sick and lots of others that are traveling, but we do have lots of guests and we're just really glad, delighted that you've come to be with us and hope that uh, we're doing things today in such a way that is encouraging to you. Most of all, that it is glorifying to God. Hope that we'd all be able to leave here today saying that it was good for us to be here. I want to kind of give you the heads up right now, uh, and I feel like I've kind of made this disclaimer a couple times already in this year-long preaching theme on taking sin seriously, but I need to do it again this morning. This is not going to be a pleasant sermon. It's just not. It's not going to be enjoyable to talk about. It's not going to be enjoyable for you to listen to. I don't think anybody today is going to walk out the door and give me a high five and say, yeah, Josh, that was my favorite sermon of all time. Nobody's going to do that today. Having said that, though, I hope that everyone will leave this day with the recognition and with the understanding that, you know what, that might not have been real fun to listen to and to think about, but we needed to think about that. That's important. That's something that we want to be prepared for and something that we want to always do exactly as God teaches in His Word. I hope that will be your mindset by the time that I'm done talking this morning. We're taking sin seriously this year. And we need to think about, think about that at a congregational level. In 1 Corinthians 5, I'm reading here beginning in verse number 1. In 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 1, I want to read just the first couple of verses to start with. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you... The church at Corinth, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Recently, I came across some excerpts from an old church record book that dated back to the 19th century. This book detailed all of the historical happenings of a congregation located in Canton, Missouri. It was, I'll just go ahead and tell you, which is fascinating stuff. Now you might be thinking, Josh, an old church record book, how fascinating could that possibly be? You'd think it would probably have lots of kind of mundane information, maybe the dates of baptisms, maybe the dates of deaths of the members, maybe uh, attendance figures, contribution figures, that sort of thing. But actually what I was fascinated by was that these records contained a great deal of information about how that church dealt with unfaithful members. For example, on July the 9th, 1866, the record stated, The case of Brother D.B. Dixon for swearing and using profane language was taken up by the brethren. Brother Dixon being present said that he was in a passion and he may have used such language as was charged, but he did not recollect it. However, he was sorry for it, and he asked for the forgiveness and prayers of the brethren. 
Another entry on that exact same date read, Brother A.J. Miller was charged with dancing and drunkenness. Not being present, it was agreed that the elders should go see Brother Miller and talk with him. On September the 9th, 1883, the record reflected, and apparently this was a very busy day, it said that after the preaching this morning, Brother Smith stated that the elders of the church had, in their judgment, found a number of members that they thought best to withdraw from and would now present them to the congregation for action. Brother Frank Carter for drinking and using profane language. Brother John Littimer and his wife for joining the Methodist Church. Brother Samuel Wadsworth for hunting and fishing on the Lord's Day. Brother Edward McVeigh for drunkenness. Brother William Taylor for drinking. Brother Harry Gallus for hunting and fishing on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I entirely agree with all of the reasoning and all of the methods that were necessarily used by those brethren in that congregation centuries ago. After all, if it's sinful to go out and do fun stuff on the Sabbath day, then we're all going to be in trouble, aren't we? However, I am impressed to read about churches who were so active and so involved in seeing to it that their members lived according to the standard of God's Word, or at least what they understood to be the standard of God's Word. I am told that if you could hop into a time machine, and if you could go back to the 18th century, the 19th century, even to the early part of the 20th century, that what you would find is that quite regularly, congregations practice what we regularly refer to as church discipline. Church discipline that was designed to help Christians stay on the straight and narrow path. It was just understood that Christians can and often do get involved in sin. And what that calls for is it calls for admonition. It calls for rebuke. It calls for exhortation. That certain steps need to be followed. That certain actions need to be taken. Certain words need to be said in order to try and bring this erring soul back to the Lord. Brethren, just recognize that the Lord's church has an obligation to maintain purity and to uphold the banner of truth and holiness and righteousness and that the church is not to be a haven for sin and wickedness. Those churches back then, they just knew that you can't just sit idly by and do nothing while sin is festering and permeating within the body of Christ. And that is why on any given Sunday, it would not be surprising for an announcement to be made that sister so-and-so has been marked because of gossip. Or brother so-and-so has been withdrawn from. Because he's living in adultery. That kind of thing was not uncommon once upon a time. It appears to me that when you survey the religious landscape of 2017, even more specifically when you survey churches of Christ in 2017, we're just not seeing that nearly as much anymore. Have you noticed that? Why is that? Why is it that congregations today aren't practicing church discipline? I'll tell you this, I think it's one of two reasons. Either A, it's because we're just so much better behaved than people were 200 years ago. You know, we we don't have problems with sin the way that they did back then. We're just so much gooder than they were. It's either that 
or B, it's that we've just dropped the ball. That churches today just aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. That we have failed to do what the Bible instructs. That passage we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks about a local church in the first century who dropped the ball big time. That church at Corinth, if you study the books of the Corinthians, that church had all kinds of problems. Not the least of which was their failure to discipline unruly members. As we just read there in verses 1 and 2, there was a member in the Corinthian church who was involved in flagrant, blatant sin, sexual immorality. His conduct was bringing reproach upon the church. And the Corinthians, the rest of the people in that congregation, weren't doing anything about it. They were just carrying on business as usual. And I wonder... I wonder how many times today that very same kind of thing goes on. How many churches today just kind of turn a blind eye to members that they know are engaged in wrong and wickedness, obvious sin. How many churches today maybe could use an inspired letter from the Apostle Paul that says, Hey, when are y'all going to do something about that down there? This morning, I want to talk to you about the difficult subject of church discipline. I want to talk about what it is and what it isn't. I want to talk about why it is that churches aren't doing that. And I want to talk about why we need to be people who are committed to doing that. I believe we understand the need for discipline in our homes. We get that. We understand the need for discipline in society in general. We get that. Why is it then that we are so resistant to the idea of discipline In the Lord's church. This morning what I want to do is I want to impress upon all of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're even not a Christian, I want to impress upon all of us that being a Christian carries with it certain responsibilities. Namely, a responsibility toward one another that is not always pleasant, it is not always enjoyable, but it must be taken seriously. This morning I want to unearth the lost practice Of church discipline. And by doing that, I want to set before you four reasons as to why I believe churches don't practice discipline and what we need to do to avoid making that terrible mistake. That all begins just right here. Just stay right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 by pointing out that sometimes we don't practice church discipline because, well, we just don't take sin as seriously as God does. That's exactly what was happening in that church at Corinth. According to verse 1, one of those brothers there was involved. Let's just go ahead and call it for what it is. He was involved in incest. And the rest of the church, eh, they just didn't think it was all that big of a deal. While we look at that, in fact, many people in society would look at that and they would say, "That that is gross. That is nasty. That is perverted. That is wrong. The Corinthians were saying, hey... Look at us. We're so proud of this. We're proud to have such a diverse membership here. We're so open-minded here. We're so tolerant. Not only do we welcome sinners, but, but we encourage them to continue in their sinful ways. We don't see anything wrong with accepting a sexually immoral man as a faithful member in the church. What in the world was up with that? Somewhere along the way, those Christians in Corinth I believe had become numb 
to the ugliness of sin. They did not see that there was something terribly wrong with that behavior. Maybe, I don't know, I guess there's a number of reasons why maybe that was. Maybe the immoral culture in which they lived, maybe that had something to do with it. Corinth was a notoriously wicked and pagan city. Maybe the church had been negatively influenced by the culture that was around them. Whatever the cause was, those Corinthians had developed a very lax, a very casual, and a very cavalier attitude towards sin. Instead of being shocked by this, instead of being grieved within their heart at what was going on, their senses had become dulled. And as a result, they did not take the action that was necessary to purge that evil from their midst. They didn't take sin seriously. They didn't see how destructive sin was. They didn't think about the consequences of that sin. In fact, if you drop on down in the text, look at verse 6. It also seems as if they failed to give consideration to the ripple effect that sin has. Look at verse 6 of the same chapter. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul says, you Corinthians, you need to realize that your ho-hum attitude toward this brother's sin, it has caused this cancer to grow, to spread. This sexually immoral man, if he's not dealt with in the right kind of way, then he's going to end up dragging the rest of you down with him. Get serious about sin, Corinthians. And now I wonder about us. Let's come to the 21st century. Is it possible, is it possible that we could become soft towards sin today? That those practices that the Bible so clearly and specifically defines as raw, as being against and opposed to the will of God, those behaviors that are absolutely unfitting of a child of God, is it possible that maybe because of our open-minded and tolerant society, that maybe we're a little bit more accepting of sinful conduct today than we have the right to be. I mean, come on, Josh, somebody says. How bad could how bad could a little bit of gossip be? Yeah, I know, sister so-and-so, she's been gossiping, but you know, I mean, everybody does that. I mean, you know, brother so-and-so, yeah, he, he didn't tell the full truth about that. He kind of told a half-truth there, but you know, we all do that. Yeah, I know sister so-and-so, she doesn't really dress all that you know, modestly. She dresses kind of provocatively, not only when she's here at church, but when she's out and about in her daily life. But come on, you know, that, that's just the standards of the day. You know, after all, everybody sins, right? Doesn't it even say that in the Bible, Romans 3.23? All of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. Come on, no. That includes even super righteous saints. All of us are going to sin. So why should we get all worked up about something that everybody struggles with? What's the big deal? Does anybody remember the name Brandon Davies? If you follow college basketball, that name might ring a bell. A couple of years ago, Brandon Davies, who was a player for the BYU Cougars, uh, ended up making some headlines. Uh, at the time, the BYU Cougars were actually ranked number three in the nation in men's college basketball. Brandon Davies was the second leading scorer on that team, and he was the team's top rebounder. And so it was quite a shock to hear on March 1st, this is like right before tournament time, right before March Madness, that Brandon Davies had been dismissed from the team 
for violating the school's honor code. Now, of course, speculation ran rampant as to what the violation could have been. You know, what, what did he do? You know, did he get pulled over for a DUI? Did he get into a fight with one of his teammates? Did he get caught with drugs? You know, what horrible thing did he do to get kicked off of his team right here at the beginning of tournament time? Well, many people were surprised to learn the following day that Brandon Davies was dismissed from the team because he had engaged in premarital sex with his girlfriend. Fornicated. Got kicked off the basketball team. Can you guess what the response was by the media, by the columnists and the bloggers and all the talking heads on television? Do you know what their response was when they heard that? They said, are you kidding me? Kicking the kid off the team for hooking up with his girlfriend? Come on, what's the big deal? He didn't hurt anybody. He didn't do anything illegal. He didn't do anything that just about most college students aren't already doing. He just had a little bit of premarital sex. Why would you kick him off the team for that and ruin your chances at a national title? They asked, what's the big deal? Well, i tell you this. I, I can't speak for the BYU athletic program, but I can speak for the Lord here. What the big deal is, is that fornication is a sin. And the BYU school took that sin seriously. Fornication is a sin, just like lying is a sin, just like gossip is a sin, just like murder is a sin, just like adultery is a sin, just like greed is a sin, just like drunkenness is a sin. I could stand up here and do this all morning long, but you get the obvious answer here. Sin is sin is sin, and God hates sin. Look in Psalm chapter 5 with me. Look in the Old Testament, please. In Psalm chapter 5, David speaks very candidly here about God's attitude Towards sin. In Psalm chapter 5, I'm reading here beginning in verse 4. In Psalm 5 and in verse 4, David writes, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Just stop right there. God doesn't take sin lightly, does He? He hates it. He despises it. Sin killed His Son. And so God wants it gone. He wants it out of His sight. He wants it out of His presence. He cannot abide it. You know what? For you and I, That is exactly the attitude towards sin that we must adopt. We must adopt that very same mindset that says, I hate sin. I hate it because of what it did to Jesus. I hate it because of how it hurts my Heavenly Father. I hate it because of what it does to me and the people that are around me. It's not funny. It's not, you know, cool. It's not acceptable. No, it's heartbreaking. It makes us sick. It separates us from our God. And because of that, sin can't be tolerated. And I believe when each one of us gets this first idea, when we get this straight in our own minds, then I believe it won't be difficult at all to then put that into practice within the context of the local church. That whenever I see my brother in sin, 
That's going to bother me. I can't just turn a blind eye to that. I'm not going to act like that doesn't affect me in any way. No, it does affect me. It affects me severely. We're connected. We're in a family together. I'm going to be stirred to action about that. I'm going to realize I have to do something here. And so what do I do? Well, maybe I begin by following the command of Jesus in Luke 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And I realize that might be kind of awkward for me to have to do. That might be a little bit frightening to have to go to my brother and do that rebuking. But you know what? My hatred for sin is much stronger than my fears about a confrontation. After all, if I confront my brother or my sister in the right spirit, what reason is there to fear? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's plug this verse in. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy here about the right way to approach someone who's been overtaken in sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, look in verse 24. I wish we could see others who are overtaken in sin, see them in the way that Paul describes in this passage. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I want to take sin so seriously that when I look at an erring brother or an erring sister, I don't want to see them as, oh, they just made a mistake No big deal. No! I want to see that person, as Paul describes here, as someone who has been captured by the devil to do his will. And what do they need if they've been captured? They need to be set free. And so, I make an individual effort to rescue them from the snare of the devil. If my individual effort to rescue them is unsuccessful, And it then reaches a point that we as a congregation, we're going to have to work together. Then what we will do is we will collectively make it known that we here, as a family of God's people, we take sin seriously. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. How does Paul describe the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5 and in verse 27? We are striving to present ourselves to Jesus, to the groom, in splendor and in holiness, without spot and without blemish. And that means then that we cannot and we will not allow sin to go unchecked in the body of Christ. We will not allow sin to go unchallenged in the body of Christ. Immorality and error within the church, it will be met with swift and even stern discipline. Why? Because we take sin seriously, just like our Heavenly Father does. Which leads directly into this second reason as to why churches today often fail in administering discipline. And that is because we just have wrong ideas about the goal of this discipline thing. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 5, I should have told you to maybe keep your finger marked there. In that passage in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses some 
some pretty strong language here when he talks about how to deal with that sexually immoral brother within that congregation. Look at the terms that he uses. In 1 Corinthians 5, look again at verse 2. He says, you're arrogant. You ought to mourn. He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Drop down to verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Drop down to verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Drop down to verse 11. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Then verse 13, God judges those outside, but then talking about those who are inside. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, a lot of folks, they read those verses. And when we maybe reach a point where we're actually having to do that kind of stuff, where we're having to practice that kind of church discipline on an unfaithful member, I think a lot of folks read those verses and what they get the impression is is that, well, you're trying to run them off. That's what you're trying to do here. You're just trying to kick him out of the church. You're just trying to weed out all the people that you determine are the bad eggs of the bunch. You just want to make yourself feel superior to them. And you know what? That's pretty common thinking. In fact, maybe at first glance, just reading those verses just kind of on the surface, I can almost see how someone would even come away with that conclusion. Most folks, when they think of the idea of discipline, they don't think about that as being a positive thing. No, most people think about discipline as being a very negative thing. For example, who here looked forward to getting spanked as a youngster? Who here got excited whenever their mom or their dad grounded them? Who here enjoyed having your allowance cut out for doing what was wrong? Anybody? Raise your hand. Not me either. I didn't look forward to none of that kind of stuff. Nobody does. Nobody delights in being disciplined. And of course, when you are on the receiving end of discipline, well, it just seems mean, doesn't it? It just seems cruel. It just seems harsh. And the person who did this to me, they're just a big bunch of meanies. They're just, they're, they're just big old bullies. And in the case of church discipline, I'm afraid that some folks kind of get to thinking that the church, well, the church is nothing more than the equivalent of the mean old stepmother. They're doing this to get rid of me. They're doing this because they just don't like me. Somebody there's got an axe to grind. And you know what? Sometimes others will even jump into the defense of those people and they'll say, if you do this, if you all go forward with doing all of this stuff, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're just going to push them away from the Lord. That's what folks often say. If you do this, you're going to push people away from the Lord. Let me give you a news flash. If someone is overtaken in sin... They're already away from the Lord. Church discipline is not about driving folks away from God. Church discipline is not about deliberately hurting people's feelings. It's not about making ourselves look morally superior, looking down on all those who are weak. No, listen very, very clearly. Church discipline 
is about bringing a soul back to God. In fact, Paul even said that right there in the text we just read. Did you notice it? Look at verse 5 again. He says, you are going to deliver this man to Satan for what purpose? In hopes that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, it's about saving a lost soul. You'll see that again. Look in 2 Thessalonians now. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is another of of kind of the the hallmark passages that we go to when we're thinking about church discipline and how all that's supposed to shake out. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul gives these instructions toward a brother who's in sin. What are we supposed to do? 2 Thessalonians 3, look in verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brothers... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not optional. We command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Drop down to verse 14 now. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Did you catch that? We're going to do this. We're going to take these actions so that he will be ashamed in hope that that shame will then prompt him to repentance. Hey, I think I just preached that a few weeks ago, that shame is designed to bring about repentance. In fact, Paul drives the point home in the very next verse, verse 15. He says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We are going to warn. We're going to do that warning with the recognition this is a brother or this is a sister who's been captured by the devil once again. And so we're going to warn them. We're going to warn them out of a heart of love. Now granted, this is what we might call tough love. But we're doing it because we care about this person's eternal soul. We're not trying to hurt them. We are trying to help them. We are on a rescue mission here. In fact, if you find Galatians chapter 6, I believe this is probably, to me, this is the quintessential passage on church discipline and why we do it. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul uses a key word here that I think just summarizes the entire goal of church discipline in one word. In Galatians 6 and in verse 1, Paul says... Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If I could sum up the entire goal of church discipline in a single word, it would be that word, restore. That word literally means to mend what has been broken. To repair something that has been broken. Imagine I've got an old car sitting in my driveway. It's an old car. It's all beat up. It's been sitting there for for, for years now. It's just collecting dust and it doesn't run. That car sitting there in my driveway, it's not of much use, is it? But you know what? If somebody who's got some skill, somebody who knows what they're doing, Doyle, Dwayne, or Eddie, one of these guys that knows how to do stuff with cars. If they get under the hood of that car, get to work in there, do some repair kinds of work, then that old clunker can actually be restored to where it is useful once again. 
In much the same way, when we talk about a Christian who's been overtaken in sin, that Christian isn't of much use. At least to the Lord, they're not, are they? That Christian is broken. They are damaged. But you know what? If a loving brother or if a loving sister gets in there and does some work, do it in the right way. We'll do that in the spirit of gentleness. Or maybe if the entire congregation is forced to get in there and do what we might call some drastic repair work, then that erring soul, they can be made new again. They can be restored when they repent, when they recommit themselves to faithful service to the Lord. And I need to say right here that even though restoration is always going to be the goal, we need to keep in mind, we can't force anyone to repent. As much as I'd like to be able to do that, we can't. We can't make someone repent. The writer in Hebrews chapter 6 talks there about how it is impossible to uh, renew again to repentance the one who's tasted the good word of God and then abandoned it. Hebrews 6, 4, 5, and 6. That passage is not saying that it is impossible for someone to ever repent. Rather, it's saying there's nothing that we can do to ever force that on someone. Our job is to simply do what the Lord commands. Admonish. Rebuke, exhort, do those things in a spirit of love and gentleness, and then pray that that erring individual will choose on their own to come back to the Lord. What I hope you see then in all of this is that discipline, when we talk about that, the word sounds bad, but it's actually for our good. It is for the good of the sinner. It is for the good of the whole of the congregation. In Hebrews chapter 12, would you find that passage with me? In Hebrews chapter 12, The comparison is made here between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. Why do fathers, whether it's the heavenly one or whether it's earthly one, why do fathers discipline their children? Well, the Hebrew writer tells us why discipline is necessary. In Hebrews 12, look in verse 10. In Hebrews 12 and verse 10, For they, earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that's God, He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What I would hope and what I would desire is that I would be able to develop that kind of long-term, big-picture vision where I can look past the temporary pain of this moment. God's discipline does bring about temporary pain in the short-term moment. What I would hope is that I'd be able to see past that, beyond that, to see that the result of it is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And unfortunately, that's sometimes our problem. We can't think long-term. We're not able to see past the short-term moment because we're all focused on the here and the now and how much it hurts right now, which is exactly reason number three why churches don't discipline. And that is because we fear that there might be adverse consequences if we do that. I'm going to guess that many of us have heard stories. Some of us have maybe even witnessed firsthand we were present in the fallout of church discipline that went awry. We know all about how when discipline is administered and as it's carried out in the biblical way, we know how brethren can get angry about that. We know all about churches that have 
split and just completely ripped apart. Maybe because the church wasn't practicing discipline when they should have. Or maybe they did practice discipline and it was just a mess. And we know of churches as well that have been bad-mouthed and have been falsely accused because they did practice discipline and they did it in the right way. There are even churches, did you know this? There are churches that have actually been sued by members who were disciplined. I'm not making that up. In 1981, the Church of Christ in Collinsville, Oklahoma, they learned that one of their members, a sister Marion Gwynn, she was carrying on an affair with the town mayor. She refused to repent of that. When the church ultimately withdrew fellowship from her, she filed a lawsuit against the congregation. After a three-year battle in court, Marion Gwynn was awarded $390,000 in punitive damages, which was more than six times than the church's annual contributions. Now, I realize that may be a very extreme case, but let's tell the truth. Many times we are afraid that if we do this church discipline stuff, we start following the steps and the procedures, we're just sure and we're just certain good is not going to be the end result here. No, we're just certain this is going to turn out bad. We start thinking in worst case scenario that we're going to start losing members here. We may start getting a bad reputation in the community. We're going to see a big drop in our attendance numbers, which means we're probably going to see a big drop in our contribution as well. And you know what? We don't want any of those things to happen. Yet it is surprising to me that in Acts chapter 5, in the very first recorded case of church discipline, when Ananias and Sapphira were severely and permanently disciplined for their sin, the Bible tells us there that the church in Jerusalem... They didn't suffer any adverse consequences. In Acts chapter 5 and in verse 11, what we're told is that great fear came upon the whole church. That church got even more serious about serving the Lord. And then even further than that, verse 14 tells us that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. That church didn't suffer and get weaker as a result of that. That church got stronger. That church continued to grow. But I want to say this this morning. Even if church discipline is carried out, and folks get upset by that, even if that does cause people out in the community to badmouth this local congregation, you know what? We need to be courageous enough that we're going to stand on our convictions. That we're going to be like Peter in Acts 5 and verse 29. We're going to be the kind of people who say, we ought to obey God Rather than man. We're not people pleasers. We are seeking to be God pleasers. We're going to obey what the Bible says regardless of those consequences. And I think it is fitting that I would quote a verse about obedience because that is exactly where this discussion needs to culminate. Because I believe maybe the biggest reason why churches do not practice discipline is simply this. It's because we just don't want to obey a very, very tough command. Would you find Matthew chapter 18, please? In Matthew chapter 18, this is the definitive passage on how we are to handle a brother or a sister who is in sin. Here, Jesus gives us, and I just always appreciate Jesus here just 
really simplifying things for us. He actually just lays it out step by step by step as to what we are to do. In Matthew 18, read with me beginning in verse 15. There Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've rescued him. You've brought him back from the snare of the devil. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that is the teaching of our Lord Jesus. Let me ask you, do you think that those Corinthians that Paul had to write that scathing letter to, do you think those Corinthians didn't know what Jesus taught here? Do you think that when Paul was in Corinth and was doing all that preaching and teaching, you think he just forgot to teach them about this in Matthew 18? Do you think that somehow they were just ignorant of the Lord's instructions? Come on. No. They knew. They knew. They knew what Matthew 18 says. I am convinced though, they just didn't want to do it. You mean, are you saying that I need to go, like I have to actually go visit this brother, this sexually immoral, you know, I need to go talk to him about his sexual practices? Awkward. That's private information. That's going to be really uncomfortable. And then you're saying that if that doesn't work, then maybe I need to recruit a couple others, and now we're making just, you got a whole group of people here talking to him about that kind of sensitive stuff. And then you're saying that if that doesn't work, we need to get up and we need to make a big announcement about that in front of the whole congregation. Boy, you know, that's going to stir up a real hornet's nest. Because you know what? His uncle is a member there and his sister is a member there. And that's just going to cause all kinds of trouble. And then if it actually comes down to it, that we have to actually disassociate ourselves from that brother, that we have to treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector, come on! That's so hard. We can't do that. That's going to be really painful. Don't you know, we get together every Halloween. He has a big Halloween party at his place. And all of us go over there and we just have a big old time. Are you saying we can't do that anymore? Come on. That's just too hard. Too difficult. Can't do it. And I will readily admit to you that what Jesus commands here, it is difficult. And what Paul said that we read earlier from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 about withdrawing from disorderly members, that word withdraw, it literally means to shrink back. It's kind of like a set of like, like blinds on your window. You pull the string and the blinds, they shrink back from the window seal. That's the idea. We're going to pull away from the disorderly. That, that's a tough thing to have to do. And I'll say as well that what Paul instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about refusing to eat with, the idea of participating socially in social kinds of activities with a member who's been withdrawn from, that too is terribly hard to do. And think as well, think about how that might complicate family relationships. I have an uncle who was once a deacon in the Lord's church. I remember him being an exemplary song leader and just just a fine man. But then he engaged in an adulterous relationship. 
Started seeing a woman he had no right to be seeing. Ended up getting a divorce from his current wife. And to this present day, he continues to live in that adulterous relationship. The church, of course, that he was a member of, they withdrew from him when he refused to repent. And so, for the last 25 plus years, outside of the two funeral services for my grandmother and my grandfather, my relationship with my uncle has been terribly strained, to say the least. And the very few instances that I have had to sit down and to talk to him man to man, I've tried very hard to do what Paul says, and that is to admonish him as a brother. So you don't need to tell me about how difficult all of this is. I know, I understand, none of this is easy. But I want to say two things about that. Number one, it's not supposed to be easy. And number two, God expects us to do things that are not always easy. Don't you imagine? Don't you imagine that it was tough for that father in Luke 15 in the parable of the prodigal son? Don't you think it was tough for him not to just saddle his donkey and ride out to the far country and pull his prodigal son out of the pig pen and out of the mud himself? But he didn't. Instead, he waited. He waited patiently and prayerfully for that prodigal to come to his senses. What he knew is he knew that that prodigal needed to feel the the sting of that separation, even if it took years As hard as it was, he restrained himself until finally, finally that prodigal son came home. And that is our hope, isn't it? That those who are out of fellowship with God, and if someone's out of fellowship with God, then that means that they're out of fellowship with us. Our hope is is that they will come back to the Father before it is too late. But I want to say to you that whether that happens or whether that doesn't, We have to be the kind of people who are steadfast, who are ready to say what Peter said in Luke 5 and verse 5, Nevertheless, at Your Word, Lord, we will obey. When it's easy, we will obey. When it's hard, we will obey. Our commitment to Jesus Christ and our commitment to one another is such that we will take decisive and yes, even difficult action Because we believe that God's way is best. And I'll tell you now, it doesn't matter what the church over there does. It doesn't matter what the church down there is doing. It doesn't matter what churches maybe you've been associated with in the past, what they did or what they didn't do. That's irrelevant here. We, the Lakeside Church of Christ, we are going to stand for truth. We're going to practice the truth. We're going to practice that church discipline thing in all of its different forms, in all of its different stages. We're going to practice that consistently and properly because our obedience to the Lord absolutely demands it. told you this wasn't going to be a fun sermon. Let me conclude with something that maybe is a little bit more bright, a little bit more optimistic. There's an old phrase that we often use. It's, it's not a quotation from Scripture, but it certainly fits with the teaching of Scripture. And it is a phrase that I believe we would do well to remember whenever we are dealing with any brother or any sister who is overtaken in sin. Maybe they've, already, they've reached the complete point where they've actually been withdrawn from by the local congregation. 
We need to remember this phrase. It's the phrase, it ain't over till it's over. It ain't over till it's over. Only death or the return of Jesus can put an end to our rescue efforts in bringing the lost sheep back to the fold of Satan. And until that time then, what we're going to do is we're going to keep on praying. We're going to keep on encouraging repentance. We're going to keep on standing firm on the Word of God. We will never, ever give up. I'll close this morning with what James says in James chapter 5. Where James says in verses 19 and 20 that if anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. Amen and amen. If you prepare yourself now to get ready for the song that's been selected as a song of invitation, we're going to sing that song to invite you to do some of that obedience stuff. That is a great part of what the invitation of the Lord is about. How do we respond and access the grace and the gift of God? We do that through our humble obedience to Him and to His Word. I'll go ahead and tell you, if you're not a Christian, obedience to God's commands to become a Christian, in comparison to this church discipline stuff, it doesn't even begin to compare. God's commands for you to become one of His children, it's not that tough. In fact, it's very simple in many ways. To believe in Him. To confess what we believe in our hearts. To say that with our mouths, that I believe Jesus is the Son of God. To repent and turn away from sin, that can be tough sometimes. But to have that resolve, that change of mind, change of attitude about sin, and then to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, that's probably the easiest one of them all. You don't have to really do anything. Just stand there. And we'll do the work putting you under the water so that you can arise to walk in newness of life. All of your sins forgiven. Can we help you to become a Christian this morning? Let me say to a brother or a sister this morning who maybe has been overtaken in sin. I don't, I don't know where you may be. I don't know everybody's private life and every single thing that might be going on in your life. But I would trust and I would hope that after a sermon like this, you would know And you would understand just how much we care for you. And we care for your spiritual well-being. And for as much as we care for you, our Heavenly Father cares for you infinitely more for the well-being of your soul. If there is sin in your life, repent of it. Get it fixed. Get it out. If you need to call upon this local body, that's part of church discipline. How is that discipline enough to go to my brothers and my sisters, to humble myself and to ask for their forgiveness and to ask for their help in overcoming that sin and being faithful to the Lord? We're ready to do that even this very morning. You just need to make it known. Whatever your need may be, just make it known right now while we stand and while we sing.